Okay, to begin my sermon, I have a, couple, a slide for you, and it was pointed out to me that not everybody would know what a piggy bank is. This is something we use, um, slide please, <laughs> something we use with children in um, America, and I don't know in other countries of the world. Okay, slides that go with the sermon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, oh, it's not this one, not this one. Not that one. <laughs> Not that one. Oh, no, okay. Um, giving. This is the theme of the sermon today. Next. Next. Great. Okay. Piggy bank. Okay. Who had a piggy bank when they were little? I had a piggy bank. Oh, Yoko did too. Oh, a lot of you did. Okay. I don't know if you do this in Japan, but we have piggy banks for children in the States. And then they put their money in and... They're, now I think they have openings on the bottom, but back in, back in the day they didn't. You had to break the piggy bank to get the coins out. It was very, very sad because you have to bust the piggy. and No one likes to do that. But anyway, I have a story about a piggy bank today. Okay? So I, this is a story about a family. They came home from church and after they got back, the mother went into the kitchen and her little boy, he was probably about four and a half, he went to his room to play. And while he was there playing, the mother thought, that's great, he's been very quiet. But then after a while, it was too long and too much quiet. And anybody who's a parent knows that's not a good sign when your child is just too quiet. So the mother decided to go check out what was going on in the room. And she could hear some metallic sound. I don't know if I can make a metallic sound here. All right, and she could hear some clanging and clinking and, and something dropping. She wasn't sure what it was, so she decided she'd better open the door and see what was inside. And she saw the piggy bank, and she saw some coins around the piggy bank, and she saw her son with a handkerchief, and he was putting the coins into the handkerchief, and then he was throwing the handkerchief up to the air, praying, and then it would drop down again. And he was doing this repeatedly. So she asked him, son, what are you doing? And he said, well, we learned in Sunday school that you should give money to God for an offering, just like you heard a little bit earlier in the service today. So since I heard we have to bring the money to God for our offering, well, today I forgot to bring mine. So I thought I would come home and throw mine into the air and whatever God could catch, that, and whatever God needed, God could keep. And then I would get the rest. <laughs> so this is the story, and it's a very cute story. And it does highlight one of the common misconceptions about giving to God. Before I continue on with my sermon, I'd like to ask some folks here, who's heard of the Methodist Church? Methodist Church. Oh, a lot of you. Great. Okay, and how many of you know I'm a Methodist minister? So, okay, good, a few of you. Yes, I'm a Methodist missionary and also a Methodist clergy, just as my husband is as well. And the Methodist, this is our symbol, uh, has the cross and the flame, and the flame represents Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. And some of you may not be too familiar with the Methodist Church, but it is a rather large denomination. There's 70 million Methodists worldwide. And in Japan, we have many 
Methodist schools. We have Kwansei Gakuin, or Kangaku, uh, Keimei, uh, Palmore, Hiroshima Jo Gakuin, Kasui Gakuin, that's in Kyushu, Toyo Ewa in Tokyo, Aoyama Gakuin in Shibuya, Tokyo, and in Aoyama Gakuin, there's a huge statue, it's three meters tall, of John Wesley. Okay, so if you ever go to Shibuya, you know, you can go to Aoyama Gakuin and you can see this huge statue. Do you know who John Wesley is? Yes, okay, a few of you. Well, he was born in 1703, long time ago, and he's the founder of the Methodist Church. And we have um, had two Methodist pastors at Kobe Union Church. There was a Reverend Arthur Gamblin. That was from year 1973 to 1980. He served here at Kobe Union Church. And you know Gamblin Hall downstairs? Well, that's named after him. And then we had another Methodist pastor named Reverend Mike Stanton Rich. I knew Mike Stanton Rich. I didn't know Arthur Gamblin, but I knew of him, and I knew some of the hymns that he had translated. Well, Gamblin Hall is named after Arthur Gamblin, as I said, and it's not Gambling Hall. Now, I know some Japanese have asked about that, but we don't gamble in Gambling Hall, okay? And Reverend Gamblin, being a good Methodist, would never, ever gamble because Methodists don't believe in gambling, okay? It's written in our book of discipline. We, we don't gamble, or we shouldn't gamble. Some may do it on the side, but anyway, Gamblin Hall, not gambling, okay? Make sure you get that right. All right, so many Methodist missionaries have also made KUC their home church. You know, those who have been here, are a friend of mine named Judy Newton was a mission member here. Um, many of you remember Reverend Tim Boyle. Um, Ted Kitchen is a Methodist missionary. Hi, Ted, right over here. His parents were Methodist missionaries in Tokyo. So we have some connection. And the pews in the, um, these hymn books in the pews that you have there, this is a Methodist hymnal. But because we're an international church, um, we've taken off the symbol of the Methodist in the front. But if you open it up, voila, French. Okay, here, you can see the Methodist hymnal. And uh, just something to remember when you look at it. My last church where I was a pastor at West Tokyo Union Church also used these Methodist hymnals, or we call them also a hymn book. But we took the name off as well because we're a union church and we're made up of many denominations or no denominations. And so I've been serving in international churches so long that I'm probably more union church, more ecumenical, interdenominational now anyway. But I do like learning about different traditions and different denominations and different backgrounds. And here we have many different backgrounds in our diverse congregation at Kobe Union Church. And for some of you, this is maybe the only tradition you know. Kobe Union Church, this Union Church. Some of you became a Christian here. And praise God for whatever background you have, because we do come together to worship God. And we love Jesus Christ together at Kobe Union Church. Even those of you who are seekers, and there's some of you who are not Christian, and some of you who are not yet Christian, but you're welcome to be here. 
at this church because we grow together, we learn about Jesus Christ together, and we journey together in our faith. Rachel Evans, a Christian author, once said, the church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus at the center. The Methodist revival began in England with a group of men, including John Wesley and his younger brother, Charles. And this was a movement back in the Church of England in the 18th century. John and Charles Wesley were also at Oxford University, and they met with others regularly for Bible study and prayer to receive communion as well, and they did acts of charity together. They became known as the Holy Club, or Methodists, because of their methodical way in which they carried out their Christian faith. And that's how we got the name Methodists. John Wesley's brother helped with um, evangelism, but he's also known for the many hymns in, that he has written. He's quite prolific. He wrote more than 6,000 hymns. Now, they're not all here in this hymn book, but many of you are familiar with the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Yes, you know that one? Well, that was written by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And in back of the hymnal, around pages 914 to 923, there's a list of composers of many of our hymns. And if you have time, you don't have to do it during the sermon, but you can look back and see that uh, John and Charles Wesley have written some hymns. And you can also find authors of other hymns as well. Some of you may not have had a chance to look at this because we put the words up on the screen. But if you come to church early, you know, you can glance through this. It's also something to, to just uh, know about the, when they were written. It's always interesting to see the time they were written and by who and who composed the music. John and Charles Wesley considered stewardship an integral component of Christian discipleship. So stewardship was very important to John and Charles Wesley. It was a consistent theme of their preaching and their personal practice. And no one was exempt from the commandment to love God and neighbor. And giving was an expression of that love. John Wesley preached a famous sermon, and it was called The Use of Money. And in it, he wrote three rules. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Wesley's own commitment to give me was consistent throughout his life. As a student at Oxford, he lived on 28 pounds a year. Now, I don't know how much that was back in the 1700s, but that's what he lived on, 28 pounds a year. And his, as his earnings increased to 30 and eventually to 120 pounds annually, he continued to live on the same 28 pounds. He told people that if at his death he had more than 10 pounds in his possession, they could call him a robber. Earn all you can. Do we need advice to earn all we can? Well, Wesley was not telling people they should be focused on just acquiring a lot of money and a lot of material things. 
Rather, he emphasized earning all you can through part participating in God's healing and creative work in the world. His sermon is a warning against destructive ways of earning money by hurting oneself or others or hurting the creation. He emphasized restrictions on exploiting others or gaining from the pain and suffering of others or of oneself. Giving in the Wesleyan tradition considers how we earn the wealth, not just how we use the wealth earned. Save all you can. Wesley challenges, rather than endorses, accumulating and hoarding. He was not calling the Methodists to invest wisely and build large saving accounts. He compared such practices to, this is a quote, throwing your money into the sea. The maxim, save all you can, is a call to a simplified lifestyle, a warning a warning against extravagance, opulence, and self-gratification. Wesley considered anything we have that is unnecessary as having been extracted from the blood of the poor. Not being selfish or greedy in order for the poor to live, he said that is a form of giving. Are we are we willing to live simply so that others may simply live? Stewardship has to do with what we are willing to do without as surely as it has to do with what we are willing to acquire. Give all you can. Wesley's third rule of stewardship gives meaning to the first two. We are to gain all we can and save all we can so that we can give all we can. In Wesley's own words, save all you can by cutting off every expense which serves to indulge foolish desire to gratify either the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, or the pride of life. Waste nothing on sin or folly, whether for yourself or your children, and then give all you can. In other words, give all you have to God. Earning, saving, Giving are all means of giving oneself to God. Giving for Wesley is rooted in the very nature and activity of God, whose nature is love, which is the emptying of oneself on behalf of others. The giving of life, abundant and full life. Grace, God's unmerited love poured out to humanity supremely in Jesus Christ, is who God is. Love for God, therefore, inevitably involves giving of oneself to God and the neighbor. One cannot love and fail to give. His understanding of God as one who is especially present with the poor and his own relationships with the poor shaped Wesley's rules for giving. His concern for the poor was holistic. Yes, he preached the gospel to them, calling them to conversion, and nurtured them in class meetings. He also developed a free health clinic and started a school, a sewing cooperative, and a lending agency for the poor. They were his friends and special friends of Jesus. So giving to the poor 
was a means of serving Christ, and that was Wesley's lifelong passion. Well, how many of you know about Toyohiko Kagawa? Okay, all right, a few of you. Well, he was born in 1888 and lived to 1960. Reverend Toyuko Kagawa was greatly influenced by John Wesley's commitment to the poor, and that is what led Kagawa to live and serve among the poor in the slums of Kobe. And Toyuko Kagawa also established unions, schools, hospitals, and churches. Here he is in the slums. This is a very different time in Japan. Both Kagawa and Wesley believed that giving is rooted in God's very being. The ability to give itself is a gift from God. All life is grace, a free, uninerred gift from a giving God, God who invites us to share in the divine life and mission of giving. We are stewards, and, as, and a steward is one who ensures that all have a place at the table of God's provisions. God has generously invited us, God has invited all of us to share in God's own life, to share in God's activity, calling us to make sure that the human family has all things necessary, all things necessary in order to flourish. In today's scripture, the Apostle Paul is also talking about giving to the Corinthian congregation when he took his financial concerns to them. The illustration of sowing seeds that Paul uses to explain himself sounds a little bit like one of Jesus' parables, doesn't it? The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. However, Paul is talking about money when he says, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is kind of Paul's Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus had his own Sermon on the Mount, and this is Paul. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Sermon of the Mount, who are not yet Christian or who are not or new Christians, this is a collection of sayings found in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which emphasize the moral teachings of Jesus. And it's one of the longest teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. It includes the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, Christian discipleship. So those of you who are not familiar with it, I encourage you to go home today and to read it. It may be that Paul is implementing the very first church stewardship campaign. He has a real passion for stewardship, knowing that heartfelt giving sows the seeds of eternal harvest. Paul is collecting a love offering for the mother church in Jerusalem, which has fallen upon hard times. The church that commissioned and sent missionaries such as Paul and Silas out to spread the gospel now needs assistance. The newly established churches seem to be faring much better financially than the original church. Paul explains that because of their rich blessings and all they have to be thankful for, it's their turn to help others. 
Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is what Paul explains to the new church in Corinth. God loves a cheerful giver. The original Greek word for cheerful is hilaros, which is the root of our word hilarious. So to be hilarious, to laugh. In other words, we are to be hilarious. We are to laugh and do it with joy over the prospect of giving. We are to be hilarious as we share our bounty, our many blessings, our indescribable gifts, not the least, which is our salvation. Paul explains that helping the Jerusalem church in its time of need is a way of giving thanks to God for all of God's generous gifts. Paul then thanks God for God's indescribable gift to them and to us. He has also bragged about the Corinthians' um, generosity to the churches in Macedonia, in the northern area of Greece. So he challenges the Corinthians to live up to the reputation he's established for them. Paul also praises the efforts of the churches in Macedonia, hoping to stir up a little healthy competition among the various churches. Today we practice anonymous giving since it's impolite for church people to talk about giving. But doesn't anonymous giving easily become anonymous non-giving? While spiritual humility insists that we not flaunt our giving, most of us would probably be embarrassed for others to know how much we actually give. Actually, John Wesley opposed tithing because he thought 10% was too stingy. These were different times, <laughs> 1700s, but he has a point. I talked with Chuck Graft the other day and on how African-American churches give, because as you know, Chuck Graff is a member, along with Kelly, at, of an African-American church in Long Beach, California. And he said there are many ways that they do it, and the church takes it, various, um, the church takes it very seriously. And I was amazed to learn that some of, from some of my African-American colleagues that they publish their congregational records so that everybody knows what everyone else is giving. Now, don't worry, I don't plan to implement that plan here at KUC. But this custom was begun by the African American Church and also Martin Luther King Jr. here at Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, followed this custom. During a great financial need and early on in his career, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr revolutionized the budget of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta when he declared that all contributions would appear on an open ledger. And suddenly people began to give like they never gave before. Maybe their exceptional giving began for the wrong reason, but good stewardship can become a habit, just like our spiritual disciplines, which include Bible reading, praying frequently, and attending worship. As followers of Christ, we make a decision to follow each of these spiritual disciplines, even when it isn't convenient. They are a demonstration of our faith, 
love, and thankfulness to God, who's been so generous to us. Both those who give and those who receive are united in mutual devotion to God. And as I prepared for this sermon, let me highlight a few things that I learned about money. Jesus talks more about the uses of money than he does about prayer. There are roughly 2,000 Bible verses about money, tithing, and possessions. 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables deals with money and possessions. One out of 10 verses in the Gospels deals with money. Money is frequently discussed in the Bible because there's a direct correlation between the way we handle our money and our faith. Jesus talks about money because when we truly, when we truly understand our roles as stewards, money is a tool we can invest into growing God's kingdom. At the heart of Christianity lies the premise that God created everything and it ultimately belongs to God. Human beings exist as stewards or as managers of God's resources, and this includes our money. Stewardship isn't just an aspect of the Christian life. It's the whole of the Christian life. For many of us, the struggle to align ourselves with God's will is played out in the realm of our finances. It's where the real battle happens for so many. As Martin Luther said, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. This is Martin Luther. When it comes to money, we will either worship wealth or worship with our wealth. And there's a big difference between the two. We may be reluctant we are to make, but we are to make a real choice between God and money. Now, there's a joke that a woman shared uh, that I heard a few years back, and when she said this, for the past few years, my watchword has been, I came, I saw, I bought. Or, in Latin, vini, vidi, visa. So visa is the visa card, okay? So it's a joke. Some of you know vini, vidi, visi. It's a Latin phrase popularly attributed to Julius Caesar. Vini, vidi, visi. Do you know this? Some of you? A few. I came, I saw, I conquered. Well, this woman had another take when she used her visa card. <laughs> she conquered that way. So she was taking liberties and reinterpreting the phrase for her particular lifestyle. Giving is rooted in God's very being. The ability to give itself is a gift from God. All life is grace, a free, unearned gift from a giving God who invites us to share in the divine life and mission of giving. Remember, we are stewards, and a steward is one who ensures that all have a place at the table of God's provisions. Giving is indispensable to Christian discipleship. Giving is part of holy living. Growth in discipleship inevitably includes growth in giving. Giving includes more than the products of our labor. Disciplined living in response to the needs of the wor world is a form of giving. We give by refusing to take from others 
what is necessary for their abundant life. Giving moves beyond individual charity to building communities of shalom, communities of interconnectedness, justice, and compassion. Giving moves beyond individual charity to building communities of shalom. Charity itself can be paternalistic means of control. Justice, however, is what is also required. John Wesley, though sometimes exhibiting a paternalistic attitude toward the poor, attempted to deal with their plight holistically. He made no distinction between delivering the medical care or proclaiming the gospel. One was not social service and the other evangelism. Both were good news. John Wesley's outspoken resistance to the slave trade, alcohol traffic, excessive interest charged to the poor, and other staples of British economic life in the 18th century expressed his stewardship. Toichiko Kagawa opposed exploitation of the poor in the 20th century. Today, giving, we share our insights and influence to build communities that reflect God's reign of justice, generosity, and joy. Let's remember that we're not self-sufficient. We're dependent. We're very dependent on the grace of God. God's grace flows through our lives. What we have is a gift from God to be shared freely. Now, taking an offering offers us an opportunity to express our appreciation for the gift of life. Generous and cheerful giving is an act of worship that honors our God, and it's a privilege to share our blessings. Giving is sacramental, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality. God's love for us knows no limits as God's grace flows through our lives. God's abundant, overflowing grace provides all things good and necessary. May our lifestyles and our giving reflect our faith and reflect our thanksgiving to God. Amen.